0: Special thanks to Mike for setting that up, and special thanks to uh, Joel and Jonathan for, uh, playing, for playing instruments for us. That was so great, wasn't it? It was like Kenny G and Yo Yo Ma. I don't know. I don't know any violinists, so, but that was great. I was up here. I was like, you know, very good, very very encouraged. I look forward to uh, Father's Day. What what our moms will do? Maybe like a three part play or something, a musical. Just think. anyway. Well, let's begin by um, reading God's Word together. If you would stand and open your Bibles to John, open your Bibles to John chapter 19. We'll read together verses 16 through 27. John 19, verses 16 through 27. Reading from the ESV, So He delivered Him over to be crucified, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus, were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and a disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Women, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Please be seated. Now, many of you might not know this, but I have a beautiful niece, Uh, she's three years old, and she is autistic, a beautiful girl, uh, precious daughter, precious niece, so if I ever run across an article on autism, uh, I read it and uh, sort it away for reference. This past week, Time Magazine, the cover article was on autism, and the significant studies, advances that are being accomplished through medicine and technology. Um, autism, if you don't know, is a, it's a variable developmental disorder. Uh, many, um, It's a degree uh, disorder from mild to severe, profound uh, autism. It is characterized by the child's inability to really communicate, uh, to form uh, normal social relationships. Autism, that owl, comes from autos in the Greek, which is self in the Greek. So the child is self-focused or imprisoned in oneself. So they are marked by, really, um, and it's degreed, child for child, but marked by an indifference to others. Um, They avoid eye contact. They do not interact with others, really speak to others. They're almost in their own world. In the magazine article, they profiled a girl named Hannah who is profoundly autistic. She was in her own world. Her parents would express their love for her and she wouldn't respond. Her her speech was limited to snatches of songs, echo dialogue and a lot of unintelligible utterances. Doctors feared that she was most likely retarded and she would be this way for the rest of her life. Well, her parents committed themselves and her to uh, occupational therapy, physical therapy, and hours of just emotional and personal support. When she turned 13, it seemed like um, there were some marked improvements and the therapy was working and they were getting through to her. On October of 2005, Hannah was introduced to the use of a specialized computer keyboard. Through this keyboard, keyboard, she proved that she understood what they were saying, and for the first time she was able to communicate her own thoughts. Marilyn Chadwick, director of training at the Syracuse University, sat her down. They stabilized her right wrist with her mother watching. A girl that was thought to be incapable of learning, reading, or writing, slowly began to type. Um, Marilyn Chadwick asked her a simple question. The first time in her life, was asked a question, she was able to respond, Hannah, is there anything you would like to say? And she typed slowly, and she wrote, I love mom. How beautiful is that? Her first words... At the age of 13, she noted her mom's sacrificial devotion and dedication to her, and her first words were, I love mom. What a great story, I'm sure it expresses the sentiment and heart of all children, all of us here, that we have a deep love for our moms. I told that story not just because it's Mother's Day, but because of our passage in the Gospel of John this morning. In John 19, we discover that while our Lord was hanging on the cross, He expressed His love and concern, His care for His own mother. Our Lord on the cross said seven things. It's documented by the four gospel writers. And one of the seven, He is addressing His mom. And it's God's providence. I was talking to Pastor Jason this week. I did not intend this. You know, I don't really like um, Mother's Day or Father's Day. I don't. I don't like, you know, like even Christmas or Easter. Because I feel like I have to come up here and give a Father's Day sermon. Or give a Christmas sermon. My heart is, I just want to study the Bible. I just want to go verse by verse and let God's Word dictate to us our subject of study. And I don't want to give a topical sermon. But on those days, I feel pressured to give a topical sermon. So it is um, days that I really don't look forward to in a way. And yet, providentially, by, by God's work, on Mother's Day, it was not planned in any way, on Mother's Day, we are studying John 19, 24-27, um, the passage that is about Mary, Jesus' mom. And this uh, brief incident, this brief event that occurred on the cross, it is so powerful. It is so instructive. It is so insightful to the heart of Jesus Christ. And, very simple message this morning, really just one point. But from this one point, you'll, you'll agree that it is so insightful, this one point, to how you and I are to live Christian lives. This brief few verses instructs us on how we are to live as Christians. You know, early on when I was a young believer studying the Bible, for the first ten years practically, as I labored through theological and doctrinal issues, I was often frustrated, I was often flustered. Why didn't God just give us a list of truths? Why all these uh, narratives and all these stories, and why do I have to dig in the Word of God to understand who God is, and the, and the origin of the universe, and the origin of sin, uh, how we are saved, how we are sanctified. Why didn't God just give us a list of, like, all these truths so that I don't, we don't have to investigate and study the Bible in this way? That is, I, that is what I wanted as a young Christian, but I realize now wow, why God presented His truths, gave us His truths in such a manner through narrative history, God has given us his precious truths, not just in a laundry list of facts and principles, but each truth is inflamed with the heart of God and it's expressed, given to us through human experience. So, that, so God did that because, so that it would be powerful to us, it would be personal. It would go beyond just our minds. It would not just be facts, cold, dead, orthodox facts that, that lie dormant in our brains. God gave us His truths through human experience, through human emotion, through lives, that it would impact us in our hearts and how we live. We see that today. I mean, we saw that in John 17, right? Remember, we studied how God wants us to be holy. Why didn't just God just say that and leave it at that? You know, you must be holy. But God communicated his desire for us to be holy by on the eve of his death. We find Jesus praying. And we hear him praying, and we find that he's praying for us. And what is he what is his prayer? His prayer is for our sanctification. And very different, right? You to read God's word and it says, God wants us to be holy, okay. I'll try to be holy. But you read and discover Christ in the eve before His death when He will be forsaken by God the Father. And you overhear His prayer and His prayer is for us. He's praying for you and I. Those who would believe in His name through the testimony of the apostles. And then we find out through His prayer that it was for our holiness. A world of difference. Same truths. But because of its presentation a world of difference. Same thing here in John 19. We find a simple truth displayed powerfully through the life and ministry of our Lord to add force to this truth. It is presented during the Lord's final hours on the cross. Here are the words of a dying man. The heart expressions of the dying savior. Well, let's get to the context John 19:17. A bit of review. Our Lord is now crucified on the cross as as he is led to the cross. To set up the context and a little review from last week, our Lord experiences fourfold shame. Shame upon shame upon shame upon shame. The first shame Is that he is kicked out of the city. He is cast out from the city of God, Jerusalem. God's city. Verse 17 said says he went out, and it means he went out not out of Pilate's house, but he went outside of Jerusalem. So significant. Because this is Passover weekend. Passover Day is looming and God ordained in the old testament that the sin offering for the people was to be carried outside the camp Leviticus 16:27 carried outside the camp burned outside our lord was the passover lamb so to be sacrificed on this great day they led him outside the city of god experiencing the reproach the, the shame, the scorning of being cast out of God's city. The writer of Hebrews understood this. Hebrews 13, 11 through 15. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His blood. And He appeals to the people, Jewish believers, Therefore let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured let's not be and i think brian prayed this last week let's not be wed to this world let's not cling to this earthly city let's cling to the city of god and because christ suffered outside and bear reproach let us leave this world and all its entanglements and embrace the shame of the cross and go outside with with christ and bear the shame of the cross what a beautiful picture Christ experienced the shame of being led out of the city of Jerusalem. Not only that, the second shame of carrying His own cross. Verse 17, and He went out bearing His own cross. This portion of the punishment was imposed on only the vilest of all all criminals. The, The cruelest of all criminals was given the shame of carrying the instrument of their own death. And yes, the other synoptic gospels are accurate. Simon from Serene carried the cross. It was when Christ could not carry it no longer. But John was there, John was a witness, and John saw Jesus being led out of the city, carrying the cross to the place of his death. His second shame, the third shame, was the public death. The public, humiliating death in our country with capital punishment. Said this last week even the most even the most vilest cruelest criminals criminals who have committed the most heinous crimes unmentionable crimes our government says this man has some dignity he, he owe, he's owed some semblance of respect because he's a human being so we don't broadcast this on pay per view We don't do this as a public spectacle. No, he used to die in a private context, semi-private context, where family, friends, and special lawyers and, and reporters are invited to witness this death. But they don't make it a spectacle. Well, not with Christ. Golgotha was by a near major highway, a thoroughfare where people would come and walk by and see men being crucified. And that is where Christ was murdered where Christ was humiliated. It wasn't behind walls of a prison. It wasn't in a dungeon for Him to die alone. He died before the world, and He was shamed before the world. And not only that, the fourth humiliation was the inscription that was placed on top of His head. On the cross, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. This was not a statement of faith on Pilate's part. He was not saying He is indeed the promised Messiah. It was... the the crime with which he was convicted and found untrue. He is not the king. He is committing blasphemy. That is why the passers-by mocked and scorned him with this very indictment. Matthew 27, 42. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Mark 15, 32. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. That became an added insult, added shame to our Lord's death. John's Gospel though, is not really focused on the shame of the cross. And particularly, it's not focused on the cruelty the torture, suffering, and pain of the cross. It is not. Um, this is where the Passion of the Christ, uh, the movie was based in the Gospel of John, but this is where they got it wrong. I mean, I understand that New Testament believers knew what crucifixion was, and perhaps that is why John didn't give a blow by blow account of the cross. And for 21st century Christians as us, we live in a sanitized world where death is taken care of by orderlies behind closed doors. And, and when we see a dead body, they have makeup on, their, their hair is done nice. Even they look better you know, then than they, do when they were alive. And that's how we treat death. And that's why for us to understand the cross is necessary. But really for John, his d- desire to depict the cross was not to highlight the physical torture or the suffering or the pain of the Messiah. No, the focus of John's Gospel is his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. His account of the crucifixion is to to prove to his readers, and John was a faithful Jew. He was like Apostle Paul. He was vexed within himself. He he considered his great mourning in life that his fellow Jews did not embrace Jesus as the messiah as so he was writing this gospel to fellow Jews that they might believe in Jesus as the promised one as the christos the anointed one the messiah and so for the, for to that end he highlighted four prophecies that were fulfilled by Christ on the cross John 19:24 that's why he said this was to fulfill the scripture John 19:28 to fulfill the scripture John 19.36 that the scripture might be fulfilled. And he quotes another scripture, verse 37. Again, another scripture says, they will look on Him whom they have pierced. John pointed, highlighted these fulfilled prophecies so that men might believe in Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah. That the shame of the cross did not disqualify Him from being the Messiah. That's the Jewish mindset. The Messiah comes, he's enthroned, in the, he's enthroned as King and He rules over all the earth and there's peace over all the earth. He vanquishes sin and Israel is exalted. For them... The Messiah being shamed in this way was unthinkable. It was a stumbling block. But John was saying, no, the shame of the cross doesn't disqualify him from being the Messiah. It it equips him. It, he fulfills the requirements. It reaffirms. It validates his claim as the Messiah of God. He highlights these prophecies. So that John 19.35, 20.31 that men might believe in Him. So that's the outline that we were going through in John 19. And last week, we tackled the first prophecy. Wasn't that just great? Wasn't that powerful? How in Psalm 22, written over a thousand years ago, here is the account of what Christ was experiencing on Calvary, on the cross. John 22 is not just prophecy, but is a word-for-word word record of what Christ was thinking on the cross while he, while he was dying for the sins of the people. All right? I mean, we went through verse by verse on, on Psalm 22, the emotional, spiritual, personal agony that our Lord experienced, and we find that not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find that in Psalm 22, written a thousand years before. And to prove that point, our Lord fulfills, and our Lord God fulfills, a, a, a spectacular spe- specific, specific prophecy of the soldiers who crucified Christ gambling for His clothes. There are five garments, each man gets one. There is a tunic, it is one garment, there is no division. Therefore, they are in the foot of the cross gambling for His tunic. And that was spoken of in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. And this can only be the Messiah, because David never experienced this. Moses, Daniel, this can't be any Old Testament saint, because there is no account of any Old Testament character, being pierced, and having soldiers gathering for his clothes. It can only mean, Jesus Christ. And he fulfills that prophecy, showing himself, to be the Son of God. But before we get to the second prophecy being fulfilled, John does an incredible thing. John, that's so why we, we love the Gospel of John, because he includes a remarkable incident that is not recorded by other Gospel writers, it was not mentioned. This incident is very brief, recorded in just two verses. But you would agree, I mean, you have to, you would, you would agree that this is wonderful. And affecting. It is so amazing. Here is Jesus. Here's our Lord occupied with the most most incredible, heart-wrenching, overwhelming task in the history of the universe. I mean, it is a burden under which no man can stand. He is about to drink the awful cup of God's wrath as our substitute he is to be to experience uh to be counted as sin, imputation of our sinfulness. Reckoned he will be reckoned as sin by the Father, so that we might be imputed with his righteousness. He is about to experience God's abandonment of, of him on the cross, where the father son relationship is severed. He's about to experience I mean, just hell on the cross. Yet even at such a time, he did not deem his human responsibilities as beneath His attention. Even in this trying season of bodily, mental, spiritual agony, our blessed Lord was still a servant. He did not forget others. Hanging on the cross, when He saw the man crucifying Him, He thought of them. He thought of them, and He prayed for them. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He wasn't complaining. He wasn't being selfish. He wasn't angry or bitter or vindictive. No, he was concerned for their souls. The men who are piercing his hands and piercing his feet, he was concerned for them and he prayed for them. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And in the Gospel of John, we find out, in the Gospel of Matthew, we find that God the Father answers Jesus' prayer, where the centurion says, surely this was the Son of God. He goes away praising Yahweh. He goes away as a convert, as a follower of Christ. Because Christ did not forget. Christ was a servant and He prayed for these men. When He's hanging on the cross and these two robbers, these two criminals who are justly being tortured and murdered are executed on the cross when one of them says, Master, Master, will you remember me when you enter paradise? Will you remember me? Our Lord was a servant turned to this man lived a life of sin and as he reaches out to Christ in the moment before his death for salvation our Lord responded today you'll be with me in paradise I will remember you and now in John's Gospel we find that he did not forget his mom he did not forget his mother. In the midst of it all, he thought—he thought not of himself, but he thought for his mom. He saw her standing there, and he knew her heart, knew her distress. This was prophesied. The pain that Mary is experiencing as she stands there, seeing her her son die on the cross, was prophesied by Simeon in Luke two fifty-two. It says, "A sword will pierce." Your own soul as well. And Luke 2, uh, 34, a sword will pierce through your own soul. Prophesied of Mary. Our Lord knew this. And so before he leaves this world, he provides a home for his widower, with widowed mom. The Bible doesn't record, but Joseph is not here. Apparently, most likely he passed away. Many years previous to this. So Mary is a widow. Look at verse 25. While the soldiers were doing these things, gambling for, their, for His clothes, standing by the cross, where His mother, mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. The Jews were there, dissatisfied, their fiendish craving for our Lord's death. The soldiers were there for duty. But here is a group of people, a small company, just five in all. They were standing by the cross, drawn by love and affection for the central sufferer. So I want to focus on Mary. Focus on Savior's mom. And we find as the Lord turns to His mother... As he is fulfilling prophecy as the Son of God, he is also fulfilling his responsibility as a man, as the firstborn son. Okay, Just remember that. He is fulfilling God's prophecy in the Old Testament. At the same time, he's fulfilling his responsibility as a man, as the firstborn son. Verse 26, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He is talking not about himself, but about John the Apostle. He sees them two standing together, and he says, Woman, behold your son. My beloved disciple shall be to you as a son. He will provide for you. He will protect you. He will care for you. He will be to you as your firstborn son. And I am certain that Jesus talked to John about this previously. He prepared for this time. It wasn't at this last moment, oh, by the way, John, can you take care of my mom? No, our Lord, He was a man. He was a good son. He knew He was going to die. He knew His responsibilities. Therefore, He talked to John. I am certain, not explicitly from Scripture, but just by the context that He talked to John and said, John, You're my friend. I trust you. My mom is a widow. Will you care for her? John said, "I will." And it was, it occurred at this time. And we do this. I mean, I've done this with my children. I've talked to a father in our church and said, "If anything were to happen to Surin and I, will you take care of our take our children to your home? I don't want them to, you know, enter foster care." And other fathers have done that here. We take care of our family in case things happen. We prepare for, we buy life insurance as such. Our Lord say likewise. So mother, woman, behold your son. What an example of love for one's mom. What a model to all children. How deep our Lord's compassion and care or his mother. Another question that we, we need to address is why didn't Jesus um, entrust this responsibility to, or just leave it leave it be? Because Mary had other sons and daughters. Right? He had half brothers and half sisters. Matthew 12:46. His mother and his brother stood outside. Matthew 13:55. Are not his enemies of Christ? Were saying, "Is not this the carpenter's son?" Is not this Mary's son? Are not his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Our Lord had siblings. John 2:12. His mothers and brothers were at Capernaum. Acts 1:14. All those who were in one accord praying along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Galatians 1.19 I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Why didn't Jesus just let it be? Because Mary had other children who would take care of her. Our Lord did this because this was His responsibility as the firstborn son. As the firstborn son, this... What's his responsibility? You know, a lot of uh, Western commentators miss this because this is common in the Asian culture, very common in Korean culture. Right? Where's Mark and Nicole? Are they here today? They can, you can ask them and verify afterwards. There they are, right? This firstborn son, right? Very true. Korean women, the previous generation, they don't want to marry firstborn sons, right? When they you know, date, they, they get matched up. One of the questions they ask is, so, are you the, the 장손? Are you the firstborn son? I am. Oh, I gotta go. <laughs> I'm busy. Right? Why? Because the firstborn son has the responsibility of caring for mom and dad in their old age. So when, they don't have convalescent homes in, 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 in what they didn't, you know, that sounds unthinkable. Your family, you don't put them in a, in a bed and put a TV on for them and it's like daycare, you know, like in old age. No, they, they, you brought them to your home and whose responsibility was it? It was the firstborn son. And so women didn't want that responsibility so they tried their best to avoid firstborn sons. Alright, Mary 2nd, 3rd or 4th, Right, The firstborn sons, they were considered in Israel as the spiritual head, of the family, served as its priest, especially if the father was, had passed away. That was the responsibility of the firstborn son. And that was Jesus' responsibility. He did not abdicate responsibility and just, just die, and for the siblings to deal with what he should have taken care of. No. On the cross. He fulfilled not just prophecies of God. He fulfilled his responsibility as a man. Verse 27. Then he said to the disciple, John, unmentioned, but it is John, Behold your mother. And from that hour on, the disciple took her to his own home. She was now entrusted to him under his care. Tradition says that she continued to live with him in Judea until the time of her death, which occurred about 15 years after the death of Christ. Simple message, simple truth, so powerful, so relevant, so appropriate for us to study on Mother's Day. And I have a few closing thoughts, a few applications. Specifically for the men. So many men are tragically confused, unaware of what being a man is all about. They don't understand what does it mean to be a man. What does it mean to be a, a husband? What it means to be a father? And when you are confused, look to Christ. He gives us the greatest example of what it means to be a man. A man... Fulfills his responsibilities. A man is faithful. Man cares, leads, serves, and protects first his family, then the community, and then the world. Look to Christ, men, as an example of what a man is to be. The first example I want to highlight to you in Christ is how he honored his mom. And in a way, he honored his dad, right? His dad, Joseph. I'm sure. Okay, I'm not. I'm not biblically sure, but personally sure. That understood that he might not be around. And he talked to Jesus. You're the firstborn son. If when I die, you're the head of this family. And the way you honor me is, take care of my wife. Take care of your mom. By Caring for Mary, he was honoring his dad. And by caring for Mary, he was honoring her. And honor in the Bible is not just respect, not just esteem, not just admiration. The Greek word tima connotes financial support as well. Financial support. Elders work hard, are worthy of double honor. It's not more praise, it's not more respect. They're worthy of the honor of financial remuneration. That's what honor is in the biblical mindset. The idea of recompense. Ephesians 6, 2 and 3, Honor your father and mother. 1 Timothy 5 eight read this guys. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, he has denied his faith. And it's worse than an unbeliever. An unbeliever is better than a man who does not care for his family. Who does not honor his mom and dad in their old age. He is worse than an unbeliever. Our Lord prepared for this ahead of time. What about you? You prepare to buy a car, prepare to go on vacation, you prepare for your retirement. As a man, as a son, as a child, do you prepare to honor your parents, to pay them back, to care for them when they are in need? That was our Lord's example. Second example is that He is the model of a true servant. Model of a true servant. A true servant serves others when his own needs are not being met. A true servant serves others even when they are hurting, they are in pain, they are suffering, when their heart is melting within them, their strength is like potsherd, brittle, they are melting away like water, weak as water. They have no strength for themselves, a true servant does not become inwardly self-focused. A true servant turns to others and says, God is far away from me now. God is distant. He is not answering prayer. I am suffering. But let me pray for these soldiers who are crucifying me. Today you will be with me in paradise. And mom, here is your son. Here is your mother. A true servant is always thinking of others first and it begins with family. begins with family. Uh, Two more. He didn't use human responsibility as an excuse from being faithful to his responsibilities to God. He didn't use human responsibility as an excuse from being faithful to his responsibilities to God. He didn't say, oh, God, I can't go to the cross. I would love to die on the cross, submit to your will, please you, but I have to take care of my mom. Oh, I got these sisters, I got to marry them off before I can do anything for you. I got to start a business, I got to make money, I got to buy land, I got work to do to care for my family and provide for them. My dad's gone, so it's my job, so I can't follow you, I can't obey you, I can't do your will. Our Lord didn't do that. He understood his priorities. That the first priority is obedience to God. Fulfilling God's will. That's the priority. This, This priority is illustrated in John Bunyan's life. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He was arrested for preaching the gospel. He was an unlicensed pastor. Meaning, he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation by grace through faith alone. And so they arrested him. And while he was in jail, his second wife, first wife left him with four kids. Second wife miscarried while he was in jail. He could not comfort her. He was in prison for 12 years. His oldest daughter, Mary, was born blind. And he said it was like pulling the skin off of his bones. Not being able to care for her while he was in prison. But he stayed in prison and he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. At any point, if he said, I will not preach the gospel any longer, I'm done with the gospel, he was set free. He would go home, take care of his wife, take care of his children. Those were his responsibilities as a man. But the gospel was at stake. He could not compromise on the gospel and say, I will not preach Christ any longer to fulfill his human responsibilities because the priority it's obedience to God. And then, everything else. That is why Jesus said, uh, to the man who said, I will follow you, Luke 9, 59. But let me go first and bury my father. That, that's a uh, idiom. you know. My, my dad's still alive. I'm his son. I have responsibilities at home. Once my dad dies and I'm free, then I'll follow you. And Jesus said... Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, proclaim the kingdom of God. The priority is God's kingdom. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Priority. He didn't use human responsibilities as an excuse. Neglect his responsibilities before God. At the same time, number four, Jesus didn't use His responsibility to God as an excuse to be unfaithful to human responsibilities. He didn't use His responsibility to God as an excuse to neglect His human responsibility. He didn't say, I think no one could fault Him. I mean, He's dying on the cross. I mean, He's drinking the cup of God's wrath. No one could, I think, fault him if he neglected his mom. But he didn't do that. He didn't use this uh, death on the cross as an excuse to set aside his human responsibilities. He understood that God never puts us in a place where we have to compromise on one. We can do it all. We need to do it all. And he did it all as an example. He was faithful to God. And he was faithful to his mom faithful to human responsibilities. Let me use an illustration here. You know, years ago, you know, years ago financially, our family was a much more difficult we were a young church plant. So, I knew I had limited income. So, for our finances to work, I have to save money on the front end. So, I have to buy things cheap so that I'm making income in that way. So, I became an expert on eBay. I mean, you want something... Even now, I'll I'll find it for you. 30% less. Like new condition on eBay. And so I was buying all these things on eBay. And then, um, you know, bought something. And we're emailing one another. And uh, she saw my email address. Oh, she's a Christian too. She graduated Biola. This transaction occurred. I got the item. It turned out there were things wrong. So she promised to uh, refund, you know, $100, right? I said, that's great. Win-win. That's fine. So a month passes by, nothing. Two months passes by, you know, I email her. Oh, you know, that refund that you promised, you know, I'm waiting for it. I she said, oh yeah, I'll get to it, you know, don't worry. You know, another month passes by, and I'm like, come on, what's going on? So literally, four months pass by, and I email her. Like, you know, $100 is not a lot of money, but for our family, it's not nothing, so... Appreciate it. I want to move on with my life. You know, Uh, can you please, please pay? And she writes back this long email, how, uh, you know, kind of like, why are you bothering me? I was doing ministry. I was on missions. I was doing all these things for God. So okay, here is your hundred dollars. My response was, I got so wrong to so. Elevate ministry and missions to the point where you neglect human responsibility and excuse your uh, negligence, excuse your laziness. That's why sometimes I don't want to deal with Christians. When I do business, when I go to a mechanic, I rather, sometimes when I just go to a non-Christian mechanic, right? Because they're focused on excellence at work, not using church or ministry's excuse for a shoddy job or any kind of business transaction. That's not right. A Christian is faithful to their responsibilities to God and all the more their human responsibilities. If you have a personal debt, let no debt remain outstanding is a debt of love. But we pay debts. We are above reproach. We're blameless. We're excellent at work. We don't use church. We don't use ministry. We don't use service for God missions as an excuse to be negligent in these ways. So I'm preaching to all of us here. What about, what about us? Are you using Christ, are you using church as an excuse for your negligence, for your unfaithfulness as a father? Right? Or are, are, are you so busy with ministry, you're neglecting the home as a mom? You know, what about sons and daughters? Are you, are you not a good son? Are you not a good daughter? And the excuse you use is church, it's ministry, it's evangelism, right? I mean, leaders of our church, we've talked to some of your parents, and like, we come away somewhat embarrassed sometimes. You know, Dad said to us, my son's a leader at your church, he won't pick out trash at our home, Right? He won't clean his room at home. What's he doing leading at your church? <laughs> we have no response. I mean, we have nothing to say. Like we'll pay for the lunch, you know. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll get out of here, <laughs> right? right. No, my daughter. She uses our home as a pit stop. She's never home. She doesn't help with the dishes. Doesn't prepare any meals. She's home to change, you know. And then she gets in the car and she, she has to go somewhere to meet people. Are you neglecting your role, your responsibilities, and you're using the church? What about as a worker? Right? Are you an excellent employee? Do you do excellent work onto the Lord to be an example? Right? And I understand that as a Christian, you might not be the best worker. that makes sense? You might not be teacher of the year, or the best salesman, because those people... They're cutthroat, right? To be teacher of the year, they neglect their family, neglect their children. They, they don't do anything outside of just school. That's where they're teacher of the year. Or the best salesman, they'll lie and cheat and connive and, you know, use every, you know, like, unethical or stretch ethics to make as many sales as possible. We don't do that. So we might not have the most sales. We might not have the best teacher. But as Christians, we ought to be above reproach. We ought to be blameless. Everyone wants to say, he's a hard worker. Man, she's diligent. She, you can't blame her at all because they're excellent in their work. Not, they might not have the most sales in a month, but they're definitely above reproach. What about as a student? The students here, again, you might not be a valedictorian. Don't worry, I wasn't either. Right? <laughs> That's nothing. Trust me. No. But are you above reproach? Are you studying hard? Are you excelling in class? Are you giving your best to each class? Because that is your responsibility as a student. And not using uh, God and church and ministry as an excuse. Close with J.C. Rao. He said, Let us serve him faithfully as our master. Let us obey him loyally as our king. Let us study His teachings as our prophet. Let us walk diligently after Him as our example. Let us look anxiously for Him as our coming Redeemer of body as well as soul. But above all, let us prize Him as our sacrifice and rest our whole weight on His death as atonement for sin. Let let His blood be more precious in our eyes every year we live. Whatever else we glory in about Christ. Let us glory above all things in His cross. Let's pray. How beautiful is Your Word. How precious are the truths that are contained within. How sweet are they to us, O Lord, sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. How precious they are to us. They are more precious than pure gold. We find seven times O oh Lord, Your Word is a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path. O oh Lord, Your Word opens our eyes to the beauty of Christ, opens our eyes to the, the truths that are, that are in His heart, and opens our eyes to how we are to live. O oh Lord, we so thank You for this account of our Lord as a man, as a son, honoring His parents. O oh God, we, we ask for Your forgiveness. We confess our, our failings, our, our sinfulness, our selfishness, O oh God. For not clearly seeing this example and not faithfully following, rightly following, following You. O oh God, we pray, at the clarity of our minds, we grant us wisdom from the Scriptures so that we might be doers of Your Word and that by our doctrine and by our conduct you will be glorified and the cross of Christ will be exalted and lifted high and that will begin with our families. Our parents, our siblings, our wives, our husbands, our children will honor Christ because they see uh, the fruitfulness, uh, the sweetness that is, that, that is born from following you. May the first fruits be, be produced in our families that that will result in your gospel being spread throughout this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.